Unfortunately, the master tape from which the following recording was taken is in very poor condition. However, we have digitally restored it and we do apologise for the poor quality of parts of it. However, we hope it will not spoil your enjoyment of this sermon by Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones. We continue this morning our consideration of this great prayer of the Apostle Paul for the church at Ephesus, which is to be found recorded in the third chapter of his epistle to the Ephesians. And again, I'm going to read this great prayer to you, beginning at verse 14. For this cause I bow my knees unto the Father of, the Lord Je- of our Lord Jesus Christ, of whom the whole family in heaven and earth is named, that he would grant you according to the riches of his glory, to be strengthened with might by his Spirit in the inner men, that Christ may dwell in your hearts by faith, that ye, being rooted and grounded in love, may be able to comprehend with all saints what is the breadth and length and depth and height, and to know the love of Christ which passeth knowledge, that ye might be filled with all the fullness of God. Now unto him that is able to do exceeding abundantly above all that we ask or think according to the power that worketh in us. Unto him be glory in the church by Christ Jesus throughout all ages, world without end. Amen. Now we have reached the 17th verse, and in particular this morning, the last statement in that 17th verse the statement that follows the one we've been considering together on a number of Sunday mornings, which was that Christ may dwell in our hearts or in your hearts by faith. Then the next step, that ye being rooted and grounded or founded in love, or if you prefer, that ye having been rooted and grounded in love, may be able, with all the saints, uh, to comprehend this uh, great and unexpressible love of Christ, which passeth knowledge. Now, every uh, single statement in this great prayer is wonder and of vital importance for us all. We have tarried with that last statement about Christ dwelling in our hearts by faith because it is, of course, uh, in many ways, the crucial statement, the one that makes all the others that are going to follow possible. And we have especially dwelt on the way in which that uh, is possible to us and may become actual in our uh, various experiences. We can sum it all up, if you like, by this, and it is important that we should be carrying this in our minds constantly as we go forward. What the Apostle is praying for is that these Ephesians may know the Lord Jesus Christ himself, that they may seek him, not even seek the blessings that he can give primarily, not even seek holiness primarily, but seek him. There is a very subtle danger there into which uh, Christian biography and the history of the church shows so plainly 
It is so easy for us as Christians to fall, and that is to make anything an end and an object in itself apart from the Lord himself. All holiness, sanctification, every kind of blessing and every condition in the Christian life is to be the result of our knowledge of him as a person and our communion with him himself. That is the essential meaning of this Christ dwelling in the heart by faith. So that my primary ambition should be not to be a good man, not even to be a holy man. There are holy men in other religions, as you know, in Buddhism, Hinduism, even in Judaism. To be a holy man is one thing in a sense, but the specific thing that makes us Christian is that our holiness is the result of our knowledge of him, our relationship of him. So that in a sense, we must not even speak about deepening the spiritual life. What we should speak of is deepening our knowledge of him and our love of him. And if that becomes the case, well then, our spiritual life of necessity will be deepened. Now that's exactly what the apostle is saying here. That if Christ dwells in our hearts, well then this is the result. That we will be rooted and grounded in love. And that, you notice, is the order in which these things come. And if we vary that order, we are guilty of doing something which is extremely dangerous. However, this morning, we come on to the result, the first result, which he enumerates here, of Christ dwelling in our hearts by faith. This is the result that it leads to that we become rooted and grounded in love. He doesn't say that we may be rooted and grounded in God's love. That's coming. Here it is that we ourselves should be rooted and grounded in love. That love, in other words, should be the predominating, prevailing element in our lives and in our whole conduct and in our experience. Obviously. We have no love in us at all apart from his love. We love him because he first loved us. And there is an element of love in the Christian life from the very beginning of necessity. One simply cannot believe that the Son of God came on earth and gave himself to the death of the cross for us and for our sins without there being an element of love toward him immediately. Now the apostle knows that. He's already dealt with it in the first chapter and in the second. Here he is concerned about this deeper love, this more permanent love. And therefore he is very specifically speaking about our love to him rather than his love to us. Now we must take hold of that, I say, that what is dealt with is the love that we are aware of that is in us and that we manifest. So, uh, he is considering and describing our love to God, our love to the Lord Jesus Christ, our love towards our brethren in the faith, our love of Christian work, of Christian activity, indeed, our love for everything that pertains to our life as a totality. And therefore, I say, holding that idea in our minds, 
we can now go on to look at the way in which the apostle speaks of it. The whole element of the Christian life, he says, is to be one of love. And in order to bring that out, he uses his two pictures, rooted and grounded in love. One, you see the first picture, at once makes you think of a tree. And the second makes you think of a building. And the apostle quite deliberately uses the two pictures, the two comparisons. And he must have some very good reasons for doing that. And I want to suggest that he does it because of the similarities in the two pictures and also because of the dissimilarities. Clearly, he's got one big thing to bring out, and that's the one I've already mentioned, this whole idea of permanence. But there is also a subtle distinction between the two. So let us look at it like this. What are the things in common in the two pictures? What is there in common between a great tree and a great building? Well, the ideas at once are the ideas of depth and of firmness of strength, of permanence, and durability. Rooted, you see, means deeply rooted. So that you mustn't think of some kind of a sapling that can easily be blown down if a, a slight gale should happen to rise. You think rather of a majestic oak tree with its roots down in the depths and its tendrils spreading out and taking a firm rooted, deeply rooted, it's been there for years, and it looks as if it's going to stand forever. There it is. Well, then you look at a great building. And it's a massive building. A high building, if you like, a skyscraper. But it's got a wonderful foundation. And as you stand and look at it, you're impressed by this idea of solidity. Now, those two things are common to both depth and strength and firmness and therefore permanence and durability. But at the same time, I say, there are clearly and obviously certain differences between the two. Otherwise, the apostle would never have used the two pictures. If he merely wanted to emphasize that, well, then the building alone would have done it. But you see, he talks about the tree as well. Why? Well, here are the differences. When you look at the tree, uh, you not only get all those ideas I've just been referring to, but there is also the idea of life and the idea of vitality and the idea of energy and the idea of growth. Not only that, there is uh, something about a tree that does something to us which a building can't do. It conveys something more positive the life and the vitality and the energy and the blessings, as it were, that it bestows because of its living, vital, active nature. Now, you don't get those elements in a building. In the building, I say you've got nothing but this great idea of stability, a firm foundation, a foundation that is big enough and strong enough to hold that building and all the stresses and the strains and all the possible influences that may come to bear upon it. But there's no life there. There's no vitality. There's no growth. It's fixed. It's set. It's durable. It is permanent. 
And uh, therefore, I uh, am suggesting that uh, it is of importance for us uh, to look at the two pictures as the apostle uses them together in order that we may grasp his teaching. Now, there is something in the scripture elsewhere which makes this still more imperative and which justifies my turning aside in this way to analyze the two pictures. Bible students, those who know their Bibles well, will remember at once that this is not the only place in which the apostle puts these two ideas together. Indeed, he always seems to think in terms of these two pictures whenever he's thinking about the church. How tempting it would be to turn this meeting into a catechizing meeting at this point and to ask for the reference that I'm seeking. Has it come to your minds? Test yourself for a moment before I tell you. We must compare Scripture with Scripture always. That's the way to expound Scripture. That's the way to understand it. One scripture helps you to understand another. Well then, you go to 1 Corinthians 3, 9, and there you will find the apostle saying this to the members of the church at Corinth. He says, you are God's husbandry, you are God's building. Same idea again, you see. You are God's husbandry, you are God's farm, and you are God's building. And he thinks of himself both as a farmer and as a master builder. And it isn't it interesting and fascinating to notice that he seems instinctively to have these two things together. One without the other didn't seem to be adequate. There was something that was going to be missing in this conception about the church and the Christian life that he was anxious to convey to these people to whom he writes. So they've got to come together, a form and a building, husbandry and erection of a great building. Very well, then, the two together I want to suggest to you tell us something about the centrality of love in the life of a Christian in a way that nothing else can do and in a way that any one picture is inadequate to represent. Very well, let's look at his pictures. Take the first. Unfortunately, at this point, the original master tape is broken, but the doctor points out that we must be rooted and grounded in love and takes as his example the roots of the oak tree. There it is, I say again. Look at that great oak tree. And then go down and follow down its roots. See their girth, see their strength. Down they go and they spread outwards and they subdivide and they're gripping the earth, taking a firm hold of it. You don't think of those little tendrils that you see with other plants or that you see with a sapling. You see roots that are virtually trees in and of themselves and they're going down and down into the depths and outwards and they're spanning and embracing this great mass of earth so that if that tree is to be blown over, well then it's got to raise this tremendous mass of earth with it. But it can't happen because it's gone down so deeply, rooted. That's the thing I say that he is bringing out. And his statement is that um, that is to be the condition of the Christian. That is his description of love in the life of the mature Christian. 
We, he's here praying for people who are already Christians. They've already believed. They've already been sealed by the Spirit and all that. He thanks God for all that in chapter 1. Oh yes, they've been reconciled. They know all about that. But he wants them to go on to this. He's going on to this. Let us never forget that. This is the Christian life as it should be. This is the Christian life that is worth looking at and admiring. The kind of tree, if you like, that makes you, as you're walking through the forest, suddenly stop and stand and say, how marvelous, how majestic, how wonderful. That's how the apostle wants these Ephesian Christians to be. Now then, what are the ideas that he brings out there? Well, what he says is this, that love is to be the soil in which our Christian life is set and in which it grows. That our nutriment and nourishment and all that builds us up and should make us such strong Christians comes from the soil of love, rooted in it. The tree, you see, receives so much of its nutriment in that way. It gets various chemicals from the soil. It gets its moisture and various other things. And it draws it all up and it goes up those tendrils into the roots and then up into the trunk and out into the branches and into the leaves. That's the whole life of the tree. But the ground, the soil, is to be love, says the apostle. Very well, let me put it to you like this. Love is that which alone builds up the Christian life and really makes it like the life of Christ himself. Now, as Christians, we are meant to be like him. We are made to be made conformable unto the image of God's Son. That's the Christian. And we must ever keep that before us. We must cease to think negatively, and just to be a little bit better than we once were, or better than somebody else, Oh, no, we are to look at him. We are to be made like him. We are made anew in our regeneration on that pattern, and we are to become like him. Now, the only way ever to become like him is to be rooted in love. It is only as we are that we shall be strong, that we shall have the due proportion that is ever the most glorious characteristic of a great, majestic tree. It is only as we are rooted in love that we shall, I say, manifest these glories and be a joy and a pleasure and a value to others. The real strength of the Christian's life is to be love. Now, some may think that that's a very strange statement to make. We are living in days when love has become something weak and flabby and sentimental in people's minds, but love is strong. Love is strong as death. It's stronger than death. There's nothing stronger than true love. That's where you find the essential difference between love and mere sentimentality or sentimentalism, which is always weak and maudling and flabby. It never does anything. It's not virile. But love, love is the grandest and the most powerful thing in the world. It's full of strength. It's like that majestic tree. That's the thing, I say, that gives all this to the Christian life. Now let me help to bring this out by putting it like this in terms of certain contrasts. 
You notice that according to the New Testament teaching, it is love that does this and not knowledge. That's why I read to you at the beginning that eighth chapter of Paul's first epistle to the Corinthians, where, of course, he puts it in that memorable phrase. Knowledge, he says, puffeth up. Love edifieth or builds up. Now, this is a very important point and a very important distinction. It's the great apostle who says it, remember, the man who was preeminently the teacher, the greatest teacher the church has ever known, and who was so concerned that people should have knowledge and that they should grow in knowledge. It is he of all men who says knowledge puffeth up, but love builds up. And what we should desire is to be built up. Now, where does this distinction, how does this difference come in? Well, let me put it to you in this form. There is a sense in which it is true to say that the whole of the first epistle to the Corinthians is just a great disquisition on the difference between knowledge and love. The apostle had to write that letter to the church at Corinth because of divisions, because of sects, because there were many grievous troubles in the church, and he takes them up one after another. And you read that epistle and you notice his headings. What was the matter with the church at Corinth? Well, really their trouble was just that, that they were putting knowledge in the place of love. They were making knowledge the supreme thing. It was a very gifted church. The Holy Spirit had dispensed many spiritual gifts to them. And the result of that was that they'd gone astray. They'd forgotten love. You see, if you put anything in the primary position or in the foundation, save love, you're certain to go astray. If you put intellectual knowledge and apprehension, it'll puff you up and you'll ruin everything. If you put spiritual gifts, it'll again puff you up and divide and you'll ruin everything. Love is the foundation. Love is the soil. N knowledge isn't. Knowledge, of course, is absolutely essential. Without knowledge, there never can be any growth. Ah, but here is the glory and at the same time the paradox of the Christian life. Knowledge in the truly Christian sense is not merely intellectual. And it isn't merely intellectual because it's a knowledge of a person. The value of all doctrine, the value of all instruction is to bring us to the person. And here I and I am emphasizing it again because it's been a terrible pitfall to many throughout the centuries in the church. You see there are pitfalls on every side. The pitfall for some people is not to bother about knowledge at all and they're already down in the depths and they'll remain there. Then another man sees, well, we must have knowledge. The scripture's full of it. So he goes in for knowledge. The devil comes in and makes it purely intellectual and he has a head packed full of knowledge and of doctrine but his heart is as hard as a stone and he's dry and he's as unlike that majestic tree as it's possible for a man to be. No, no. This knowledge is to be a knowledge of a person. And because it's a knowledge of a person, it leads to love. Because the person himself is love. God is love. Christ is love incarnate. And to know God and to know Christ of necessity leads to love. 
so that I do not hesitate to assert this this morning. If the knowledge that you and I have, my dear friends, has not led to greater love in our lives, we'd better examine ourselves very seriously. Love without this, and knowledge without this, becomes what the scriptures call heady and high-minded. It makes us authorities. It introduces a censoriousness. And that's of no value at all. Now, the great apostle, I say, puts it there so clearly in that first epistle to the Corinthians. There it is in the eighth chapter. Knowledge puffeth up. Love builds up. But take it again in the 13th chapter which we read. Listen to him saying in the second verse, Though I have the gift of prophecy and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and though I have faith so that I could remove mountains and have not love, I am nothing. It doesn't matter how much we know. If we haven't got this love, it is useless. Whether there be prophecies, they shall fail. Whether there be tongues, they shall cease. Whether there be knowledge, it shall vanish away. We know only in part and we prophesy in part. My dear friend, however much you know, realize how little you know. It's all partial. We see only as in a glass darkly at the very best and highest in this life and in this world. Therefore, I say, let us realize that the business of knowledge always is to lead us to love. So that this is always the real test of our Christian life. Take our Lord's way of putting it in the Sermon on the Mount at the end of the fifth chapter of Matthew's Gospel. He says, this is my ambition for you. Be ye therefore perfect, even as your Father which is in heaven is perfect. What is the perfection that he's speaking about? Well, it's love. He says, God sendeth his rain upon the just and the unjust, and the Son upon the righteous and the unrighteous alike. That's the way you've got to love, he says. The Gentiles can love them that love them. But the whole question is, can you love your enemies and do good to them that hate you? That's how God loves. You love like God loves. Be ye therefore perfect, even as your Father which is in heaven is perfect. It's the soil. It's the only nutriment that can build us up and make us strong and appear as representations and reproductions of the life of the Lord Jesus Christ himself. But come to a second principle. It is love alone which can give us real power in living the Christian life and in working in the Christian life. Not only in and of itself, but in its activities. Now here again is a great theme in the scripture. You remember Ezra in exhorting the people to the work of rebuilding after the destruction and devastation in Jerusalem. He used this great phrase. He said, look here, do it in the right way. The joy of the Lord is your strength. And is there anything in the world that so energizes us as love? That is, I say once more, the whole difference between love and sentimentality. The sentimental person just sits back in his chair and he enjoys the stimulus and he feels very happy for the moment and then he waits for the next. He does nothing. Love energizes. Sends a man out upon a task. 
urges him, drives him out. Now, the apostle is very fond of this idea also. In writing to the Galatians in the fifth chapter, in the sixth verse, he says this, In Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision availeth anything but faith which worketh by love. That's how faith works. Again, I would notice a point which is so characteristic of the scripture. This apostle never mentions faith, but that he puts love with it. You'll generally find indeed that faith and hope and love always go together as a glorious triad. Here, you see, he's just been talking about Christ dwelling in our hearts by faith, and then in comes of necessity love. Why? Well, faith works itself by love. Faith is energized by love, and the life of faith is a life that is active because of love. Faith which worketh, works itself out by love. And it is, I say, the love of God, the love of the brethren, the love of the work itself. And this is something with which we must all be perfectly familiar. May I use an illustration from the pulpit? A man can preach because it's his job, his task, he's announced to do it. And he can be energized as far as he is energized by that alone, but it's hard work, it's a task. Oh, what a difference there is between that and being energized by love. The love of God and of Christ, the love of souls. Faith which worketh by love. But let me put this to you in a very beautiful and uh, almost idyllic uh, Old Testament representation of it. The point I'm making is that it is love that alone really gives power and strength in the Christian life. Knowledge may give that kind of head knowledge, that kind of intellectual apprehension, and that purely intellectual interest. But if you read the story of the missionary enterprise of the church, you will find in general that it isn't that that has really characterized the men who've done the greatest exploits in God's hand. It's rather this love, this dynamic, this energizing quality. Well, let me give you a, a New Testament way of putting all this very perfectly. You remember the story of Jacob, don't you? And how, escaping from home, he went to that other land and came into contact with Laban and his family and fell in love with Rachel and asked that Rachel, you remember, might be his wife. And then you read this interesting statement in Exodus 29:20, And Jacob served seven years for Rachel, and they seemed unto him but a few days. Because of the love he had to her. Seven years seems a long time, doesn't it? If you're looking forward to something that's going to come to you in seven years, you feel, what a terrible long time to wait that is. A student having a seven years course to go through. What a trial, what labor. You're waiting perhaps uh, for... Uh, some money that's going to come to you in seven years. What a length of time. But uh, here is a man who's waiting for Rachel, and he knows he's got to wait seven years, but it seemed unto him but a few days. What was the reason? Oh, it was his love for Rachel. 
Love, you see, can even manipulate history. It seems to have the power to cancel time. It makes your seconds and your minutes and your hours and your days and your months and your years something quite artificial and unreal. Love has its own chronology. Why, world, you see, it produces this energy, this power, this capacity, this capability of seeing things, everything in a new way. It doesn't count cost. It doesn't count time. It's a thing in and of itself. It's a world of its own, and it's full of this energy and of this power. But let me go on to another principle. Love is the only true motive for work in the Christian life. And this again is something that is of very great importance for us. Why are we in this building at this moment? Why do we call ourselves Christian? Why are we going to take that bread and that wine? Why do we believe in Christ dying for our sins at the cross? What's brought all this into being? There's only one answer. God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son. It is God's own motive. Why is it that that eternal, absolute, holy God should take any trouble at all about this world that rebelled against him and sinned against him and reduced his paradise into a state of chaos? Why didn't he finish it all? Why didn't he consign it there and then to perdition? And that is the only answer. God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son. That's the motivation in the heart of God. And as you look at the Lord Jesus Christ, there's nothing that stands out more prominently in all the Gospels than just this very feature. He looked at the crowd of people, and what did he see? He saw them as sheep without a shepherd. There's no word that is used more frequently about him than the word compassion. He had compassion upon the multitude. And when he did his deeds of kindness and worked his miracles and relieved the sick and the suffering, he did it all because of his great heart of love. That was the energy, that was the motive also. It was the thing that led him on. And you see, in the Christian life, you and I are to be like him. We are to follow his steps. We are to be reproductions of him. Men and women looking at us are to see him, and therefore they are to see this above everything else. And this, therefore, I say, must be the motive in our Christian life in every single respect. It doesn't matter what aspect of our lives we are considering, this must be the motive. Let me put it again as I put it earlier this morning. Do you know that this should be the motive even for holy living? My real motive for living the holy life should be that it pleases God and that it is displeasing to him that I am not holy. I mustn't set up my little standard of holiness and of rectitude and my little moral code and say I'm always a man who keeps his word, lives up to his code and his standard. That's unchristian. The world can do that and it does it. 
No, no, there's no motive even for holy living but this, that it grieves him and offends him when I'm not holy. My desire is to please him, not simply to obey a law, no, but to give joy to God and to the Lord Jesus Christ. That should be the motive. And it should be the motive in all our actions and in all our activities. God knows it isn't always. Men have been very busy and active in the church, but they've been motived, motivated by very different reasons from this very frequently. Their own name, their own reputation, their own importance, their own activity perhaps. But it's all wrong, it's all unworthy. The motive is to be loved. Listen to this great apostle who can say it without any boastfulness at all. Here is the great indefatigable evangelist and preacher. Why does he do it all? Why is he traveling day and night and teaching and preaching and crossing oceans and being subjected to such cruelties at the hands of men? Well, ask him himself. Read his epistles to the Corinthian and he'll tell you there's only one reason. The love of Christ constraineth me. It's the love of Christ. It's nothing else. He is seeing the situation as Christ saw it. He knows what Christ has done for him. And this love in his heart, he's rooted in the love of Christ. It's at the base of his whole experience. This is the thing that's sending him out. It's the motive, nothing else at all. The love of Christ constraineth me. And this is the way, I say, in which we represent him and bring glory to his name and are well-pleasing in his sight. Let me say just one further thing before I close. There is one other thing about this idea of being rooted. It's negative, and yet it's very important. It's the negative of what I've just been saying. There is no ultimate value at all in all our work and all our activity unless it is rooted in love and grounded in love. If our activity, I say, is not filled with love, we might as well not do it. It's a strong statement. It isn't mine. It's the great apostles. Listen to him. Though I speak with the tongues of men and of angels and have not love, I am become a sounding brass or tinkling cymbal. You can be the greatest orator in the world. You can speak in an affecting manner. You can move people to admiration, even move them to action perchance. And still, if there isn't love in what you're doing, you're but as a sounding brass or a tinkling cymbal. Though I have the gift of prophecy and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and though I have faith that I could remove mountains and have no charity, I am nothing. And though I bestow all my goods to feed the poor, and though I give my body to be burned and have not love, it profiteth me nothing. It's a tremendous statement. It's an alarming one. And yet it's obviously the simple truth. It must be. Because the Christian life is a Christ-like life. And everything in him came from love. And so it must come from us. The day of judgment will be a day of tremendous and of terrible revelation. We shall have tremendous surprises on that day. 
what appear to us to be so great will be nothing at all. It may not even be there. And what appear to us to be so trivial will be there in the center with the arc light of God's love upon it. What a reversal of our judgments and our conceptions. But you see, it's not only the Apostle Paul who teaches this. Our blessed Lord and Savior taught the same thing. He says the way to judge an action is not by its amount, not by its appearance, but by the motive, by the love. Isn't that the whole meaning of the story of the widow's might? It was only a might, but it was an expression of her heart. And it's of infinitely greater worth in the sight of God than millions of pounds. A might greater value than millions. Why? She gave all that she had, her love, her desire. And again you get it. You remember the account at the end of the seventh chapter of the gospel according to St. Luke of how our Lord went into the house of Simon the Pharisee. And Simon the Pharisee didn't give him water to wash his feet and he didn't give him ointment to anoint his head. He just didn't show him any of the ordinary usual civilities. He was a Pharisee, you see, and he couldn't quite understand this person. He was interested in a pint, but he didn't know him. He didn't believe in him. He didn't love him. So he allows him to come in and to sit down. And then a poor woman, a sinner in the city, came along. She fell at his feet. And she washed his feet with her tears. And she wiped them again with the hair of her head. That's the thing that our Lord commends. That woman's tears were more priceless in his sight than the most precious expensive ointments that the world has ever known. To be anointed by tears that come from the heart is of infinitely greater value, though it be your feet even, than to have your head anointed with spikenard or the most costly spices, the most glorious perfumes. Nothing is of any value in this life unless it comes out of a heart of love. The Christian is not just a man carrying out a task. He isn't a man laboring merely to do a duty. He's a man who's rooted in love. And like his Lord, his every motive arises from it. And he's energized by it. He's constrained by it. He cannot refrain. He cannot help himself. Because Christ is dwelling in his heart by faith. His life is rooted in the soil of love. And he's drawing its glorious nutriment. And it's expressing itself as a reproduction of the Lord Jesus Christ himself. Oh, may God open our eyes to this. May he give us this love. Shed it abroad in our hearts. May we seek after it above everything else. Because everything else without it is of no value, is nothing. And at the end will lead to nothing but loss. May God give us love. Amen.